This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes, as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Welcome back to part two of our two-part series with Nicole Sook, a principal at Wyndham Brennan, an accounting firm based in the US. In today's episode, Nicole shares some fascinating insights into the world of tax in the US. You'll hear Nicole discuss the impact of technology in business, the importance of staying up to date with changing US regulations, and the benefits of seeking professional advice when it comes to establishing your operation in the US. Let's jump in. Let's talk about a little bit around timing. What's the calendar year or the tax year? Do the states vary a little bit? And just give us a bit of guidance on compliance timing and so on. So most companies are calendar year, which is 1231, December 31st. You can, under certain entity types, for example, corporations can choose a different year end. And a lot of them do if they're seasonal. You know, maybe you're in retail and the Christmas season is large for you. You may want to have a different calendar year. Our own accounting firm has a September 30 year end. So you can elect different year ends, but by default, unless you elect something else, it is a 1231 year end. And your tax return, if you are a pass-through entity for us, I don't know if you have the concept of pass-through entities, But we have entities here in the U.S. We have partnerships and S-corporations where you report the income on a business income tax return, but all the income actually gets pushed out and the individual owners pay the tax. So those pastor entities, the tax returns are due two and a half months after year end. So for us, that's March 15th, if it's a calendar year end. And they can be extended six months. And it's an extension of time to file, not to pay, so you still have to clean up any taxes are due. Corporations and individuals are due three and a half months after year end, and all individuals are calendar year 1231. There's no exception for that. You can't, as an individual, choose a different year end. But if you're a December 31st year end taxpayer, then your return is going to be due April 15th, and you can extend for six months to October. There's a couple of exceptions. If I am a U.S. person and I'm working abroad, so let's say I'm an expat and I go work in Australia, If I am overseas that year, the IRS will give you two extra months because they figure it takes more time. So you may have till June 15th and can extend till December 15th. It's a little bit different. And the penalties, I know just watching TV and American Mm -hmm. movies and so on, I know the penalties can be quite severe and I've heard jail and things like that. Tell us about penalties and and, and really are they there to deter and are they really enforced or just talk us through how strict the government is around filing and filing on time and so on. The penalties for just general failure to file are only severe if you owe tax. If I file a return that was due five years ago and there's no tax liability, there's no penalty for a corporation or an individual because the penalty is assessed and the interest is assessed on the amount of tax due. So if I don't owe anything, then I am not going to have a penalty. Now, one thing we have to be very careful of 
is that, you know, the general statute of limitations is three years. So if I file a return three years from now, the IRS technically really can't come back and audit it or touch it. But that also applies to if I have a refund coming to me and I go past three years of filing a return. Like, for example, say I had a wage and I had withholding withheld and it was too much and I never filed a return to recoup that refund. After three years, that's lost. I don't have the ability to go back and file for that refund. So you do want to stay up to date, but if you file a few months late, it's going to be some penalties and interest. It's not going to be overly severe. The only time it may be severe is if you file a return and then you amend it and you have what's considered a significant understatement. So let's say I filed a return and I said I only had 100000 of income. And then I amend my return and now all of a sudden I have 500000 of income. They may assess me a 20% penalty for that understatement. So you have to be careful of that. But we have clients that sometimes they didn't know they had to file or they get behind and we help them get caught up in those situations. The biggest penalties are for failure to report foreign income tax or foreign bank accounts or foreign companies. The foreign reporting penalties are quite severe. One of the most severe is if I'm a U.S. entity and I have a foreign owner and I'm required to file a form 5472 and I do not. The penalty is $25,000 per form. Wow. So let's say I'm a U.S. entity and I have an Australian parent. I didn't report that I had that Australian parent. That's a $25,000 penalty. But let's say that Australian parent also has a U.K. subsidiary that I also do business with as the U.S. I may have to file a 5472 to report those transactions as well. That's another $25,000 penalty. If I am a U.S. person and I have a foreign subsidiary and I don't report those, that's a $10,000 penalty. If I'm a U.S. person and I have foreign bank accounts that I do not report, it's $10,000 per account. Wow. We've seen people with penalties of excess of a million dollars. Now, if it's due to I just didn't know, we can help with that. There are some processes that the IRS, you know, has come up with some streamlined processes and some ways to go back and say, look, we just didn't know, nobody advised me, we're getting caught up. And generally we'll go back and catch up for seven years. And again, it may not have any impact on your actual income tax return. That is just all foreign reporting. We all know back in the day that people held their money in a Swiss bank account or down in the Cayman Islands. Well, Switzerland is not the place to put money anymore because they now report all of that back to the United States. So if you don't report it, the IRS knows that you have those accounts. And it's actually not even the IRS that you file a lot of these foreign reports with. Some of the bank account reports are actually filed with FinCEN, which is the same unit that oversees money laundering. So it's the financial crimes enforcement unit. So they know, and then they communicate with the IRS. So the general failure to just follow your return is not so severe, but if you have any sort of foreign connection, those penalties can add up greatly. To our listeners, obviously, if you do go into the US, you will be considered a foreign owner or foreign in some way, and they're the penalties that could be significant. So, you know, be prudent, make sure you do your homework, and hopefully this episode gives you some insight into that. I want to go back through, we do have the flow-through entities, we call it a partnership. I know that in the US you have a trust, the way trusts work for us is also a flow-through entity. So just on that, I know you're not an attorney, but can we set up a company in the U.S. Can it be a sole director 
as an Australian person or do we need to have someone there that is a representative, a U.S. citizen of some sort? No, you can have 100% foreign ownership. That's not a problem. It can be one person. It can be multiple people. You generally do have what they call a registered agent in the U.S. And a lot of times that will either be a company that acts on your behalf or sometimes the attorney will be that person. But they don't have to be a director. They're not an officer. There's no requirement for them to have any actual participation in the company other than just sort of representing you. But, you know, we have companies that are 100% foreign owned. Now, the only difference is that if you have a foreign owner, it limits the type of company that you can set up a little bit. You can still have a partnership. But the issue with the partnership or the LLC, we have a lot of LLCs, is that that income, like I mentioned, flows out to the owners. And then that could potentially subject the foreign owner to U.S. taxation. So a lot of times we will recommend that a U.S. corporation be set up because that blocks that foreign owner's U.S. filing requirements, and it keeps all of the tax within the U.S. And then depending upon the treaties with that country, there may be very minimal withholding on any dividends or other payments that are paid back up to the foreign owners. That's LLC C Corp, I think you call them. Is that correct? An LLC is a limited liability company, and you can actually elect have it taxed as a C-Corp where the C-Corp pays the tax or you can elect to have it be taxed as a partnership where the owners pay the tax. Which is a flow through. Okay. The problem with the LLC, the partnership, is that if you have a foreign owner, there's a required withholding on it. And that required withholding on income is at the highest tax rate for whatever owner type they are. So if they're a corporate owner, it'd be a 21% withholding rate. If they're an individual owner, our highest individual rate right now is 37%. And 37% may be too high, so then your foreign owner ends up having to file in the U.S. to get the money back. So it gets tricky, and that's why the C-Corp is a little bit simpler. It just keeps that foreign owner's U.S. tax requirements completely outside of the U.S. I want to change topic a little bit around people. So I'm assuming we're not going to go and set up in the US and just have a fictitious address. We're going to try to build a business, build some people. Let's talk about employment and how we go around employment. Again, an example, I'm located somewhere in the US. I've hired three or four staff. What are sort of the requirements as an employer that I need to do generally? Mm-hmm. And then how does that change state to state? And is there a, a you know, a minefield or when you're located in different states around that as well? You know, you can employ people one of two ways. If they're true employees and the definition of a true employee is that you control their job, you give them supplies to do their job, they're generally not doing the same work for somebody else. Then they become employees and you have to collect, you pay them a wage and from that you collect federal and state withholding as well as social taxes, which is Social Security and Medicare. And that's required to be collected. Now the company will pay half of the Social Security and Medicare and the employee pays the other half and it's all withheld from their paycheck. And this just guarantees that, you know, they're going to pay their proper taxes and they'll file a return and they maybe do a refund or they may owe more depending on how much was withheld. But the other part of it is that in the U.S., we don't have a free healthcare system. So most employees will expect healthcare benefits to be paid. And generally what that means is that the employer will share in the cost and they go and they set up a group healthcare plan and the employee pays a certain percentage. The employer pays another very large percentage and they don't have to offer it. But if you're trying to attract talent and you don't offer those benefits, they're going to look elsewhere. 
because most companies do offer those benefits. I mean, benefits range all the way from health insurance, which includes dental and vision. You know, our company actually offers pet insurance as a benefit. Dependent care is a benefit as well. If you have to put your children in daycare, that's a benefit. And in the state of Georgia and federal, there are credits for that if the employer sets up, provides those benefits. So there's a slew of other things other than I'm just going to pay you a salary. You have to determine all of the other benefits that they're going to want. We also have retirement plans, 401k, where the employee will invest into that and it comes out of their paycheck. And the biggest thing we hear when foreign companies come into the U.S. is that hiring the people is not the problem. All of the HR, the human resources around it. And there are companies when you come into the U.S. and you only want to set up a few employees, there are what we call PEOs, they're professional employment organizations, where there are companies out there that will act as the employer of record so that they handle all of that for you. You just pay them, they pay the salaries, they issue all of the quarterly payroll returns, they pay the appropriate federal or state authorities, they handle the benefits, they do everything. So a lot of our foreign entities, that's what we advise they do. Because if you're only going to have three or four employees or, you know, even 10 or 20, that's a big burden for the employer to have to maintain all of that on their own. And with the um, retirement plan, is that mandatory or does the employee choose how much to put aside? You generally have to offer it to everybody. That would be the only exception. Some companies do have a certain, you know, a vesting time period saying you're not eligible for maybe six months or a year. Most companies will offer it from day one. So the only requirement is it does have to be offered to all employees, but it's up to the employee whether or not they want to contribute to it and how much. And a lot of companies will actually, as another benefit, will match a certain amount or up to a certain amount. They'll say if you put in 3%, we'll match 2% or 3% or whatever it is. But it is not required. It's just you know sort of strongly advised, especially for younger people. We have a mandatory insurance in Australia that's linked to employment. It's called work cover. It's to protect the business from, if there was, in an example, a manufacturing plant, someone kills himself pulling up some racks mm-hmm. or whatever, and it's mandatory. It's sort of a bit like your car registration or car insurance. You must have it kind of thing. It's called workers' compensation. Yep. And it is, and it's, the employer has it and carries it in case for it so that if anything does happen, that's work-related, then that does cover the employee. And that's it's mandatory, correct? It's by the employee. Yeah, oh. it is mandatory. Yeah. And another thing we have, unemployment insurance as well. And there's a federal unemployment insurance and a state unemployment insurance as well. So, again, that goes back to the state. They have their own little set of taxes, but both of those are required. It sounds um, very similar to Australia, a few little nuances and differences, but um, overall very similar to how we operate. What advice do you have to an Australian company wanting to take first few steps? Um, What are the first few things you'd say to them before they go and take the plunge? Don't do anything until you determine the structure that you want to be because that's the hardest thing to change. If you come in and say, well, I've heard about an LLC and so I'm going to go ahead and set up an LLC and then we'll deal with it later, That's when you get into issues because maybe the LLC is not the structure that you want. And if you get stuck in it, you might not be able to get out of it. Or if you do come in and say, I'm going to be an LLC and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make the election to be a C-Corp. And then your tax advisor says, no, you know what? This is real estate. You probably really should have been an LLC, but you can't change back for five years. So now you're stuck. 
So the biggest thing is before you set up anything, talk to your tax advisor, talk to your attorneys and your tax advisors and ensure that you get the right structure from the beginning. That's going to be most beneficial for running the U.S. company, but also for the owner, the foreign owner. My last question, obviously, let's say we've established in the U.S., it's foreign owned. I'm the officer of that company. And I want to start to travel to the US, see how my company's going, come back, go Mm -hmm. and come back. You may not be able to answer this as sort of a visa question. Does that kind of impact our visa, the purpose of the visit? Does it start to put some parameters around green cards and so on? And what do people need to do? What advice should they seek? A lot of times people will say, if you're just going to come and visit for a few days, and even though it may be business related, you're just coming in on a tourist visa. That's okay. If you're only here for a few days, that's fine. It's when you start coming here and now all of a sudden you're working here, then the U.S. is going to be like, okay, who are you being paid from while you're here? Are you being paid by the U.S. company or are you being paid by the foreign parent? And now is that putting that foreign parent into, again, we talk about the permanent establishment, is that subjecting that foreign parent to U.S. tax because you're performing services on their behalf here? So it gets really tricky. Generally, it's less than 30 days. Maybe it's not an issue. But if you start to get into a few months, even if it's spread out, week here, a week there, that can become a problem. If you come over here and you're working and you're here more than 183 days, now the IRS is going to think that you're a resident of the United States. And they're going to want you to file U.S. tax returns, even without a green card. And, you know, you would have to have the proper visa to come over here for that long. I mean, at some point, they're going to say you're no longer a tourist. But once you become a resident, we talk about that worldwide taxation. It's not just your U.S. income. Now, everything you've earned back in Australia, you're going to have to report in the U.S. And all of those foreign assets that you own, the bank accounts and, you know, the companies and whatever else you may have now, you're going to have to report all of that. And you've just become a U.S. taxpayer. Now, if you are going to come over and you, let's say you're going to do a two, three year assignment, you know, you have to be careful of the green card because once you get a green card, you are a U.S. taxpayer for life unless you physically give up that green card. You can't just go back to Australia and say, okay, I'm no longer a U.S. resident. You have a green card and you're still considered a U.S. taxpayer, even though you're not a U.S. citizen. You have to be careful. The green card is generally for people that are going to stay longer and and don't have an immediate desire to go back to their home country. The visas are tricky and there are different visas for different purposes. I'm not an attorney, so that is not my area of expertise, but you do have to be very mindful of the number of days that you're in the U.S. because your passport shows exactly how many days you're in the U.S. So, you know, that those can be counted and you kind of want to stay under that 183 if you can. Nicole, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with our listeners today. We can't wait for this episode to go live. I know lots of my clients want to talk to me about the US and expanding into the US. So this is going to be an amazing, amazing little episode for them to listen to and get some insight. So a big thank you for joining us on the bottom line. And I wish you all the best for the rest of the year. Okay, I do too. And it's very good to talk to you. And I hope to talk with both of you in the future. Thank you so much. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. 
and we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.